This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Do you have a good memory? If you do, maybe it's a source of pride, especially if you're winning a trivia game. Or perhaps it's so full of holes that you're one memory away from having total amnesia. What we remember and how we remember them can be entirely subjective. Different people can often recall the same event very differently. Usually, most of us don't second-guess our memories beyond questioning whether we turned off the oven before leaving the house or locked the front door. Other than that, it's generally not something we concern ourselves with too much. More often than not, we trust our version of events as being more or less relatively factual. When it comes to recalling a sequence of events, also known as episodic memory, it's challenging to convince someone they might be mistaken. Because memory is reliable. Right? Everyone thinks they have a grip on reality and can distinguish between what's fact and what's fiction. But sometimes reality is, well, a matter of perspective. When two men disappeared in 1974 in the Scandinavian country of Iceland, the ensuing police investigation would rely not on concrete evidence or witnesses, but almost entirely on the confessions of six people. Problem was, the suspects had no idea what they were talking about. In the mid-1970s, Iceland was one of the safest countries in the world. With an exceptionally low crime rate and where violent crime was almost unheard of, the small nation of around 220,000 people were living in paradise. Icelanders trusted the police, and as long as anyone could remember, they had no reason not to. That tight-knit, small-town ideal, however, was changing. Like kids around the world at the time, the country's youth were embracing the bohemian, anti-establishment movement of new ideas and cultural influences. The trusting relationship between the police and the public was being challenged. By the time authorities finished investigating the disappearance of those two men, it would be shattered. On January 27, 1974, 18-year-old Gudmundur Einarsson went to a party at a friend's house about 15 miles from Iceland's capital, Reykjavik. The group eventually headed out to a nearby club. As the night went on and the club filled with people, some of the group became separated. When Gudmundur's friends were ready to leave, they looked all over, but couldn't find him. Figuring he had taken off before them and that he would catch up with them sooner or later, they left the club. But by early the following week, no one had heard from or seen Gudmundur. It was a solid six-mile walk home from the club to his house, and the weather that night had not been good. Winter in Iceland can be unpredictable and brutal, and sometimes it can be deadly. Police were contacted, and a search team of around 200 people was quickly assembled. They searched the snow-covered lava fields on the outskirts of town, but found no sign of the teenager. There was a possibility he had become lost in a snowstorm on his way home and fallen into one of the many chasms created over thousands of years by the nearby volcano. If that is what happened, it was unlikely Gudmundur would ever be found alive. He might not be found 
at all. Witnesses told police they had seen the 18-year-old walking away from the club that night with an unidentified man. Shortly after, a motorist reported seeing him walking along the road in the snow. They said he was stumbling and appeared to be highly intoxicated. The search was called off a few weeks later when no signs of Goodmunder could be found. A tragedy for sure, but foul play? That was the farthest thing from anyone's mind. My name is Eric Crosby. Welcome to True. Eleven months later, on the evening of November 19, 1974, Gerfinner Einerson, no relation to Gudmunder, was at home with his 12-year-old son. While the two were watching television, the phone rang, and Gerfinner went to answer it. After a short conversation, he left the house and hopped in his car. The 32-year-old construction worker and father of two was never seen again. When police were notified and started tracing his last movements, they came upon his car parked at a restaurant not far from his house, keys still in the ignition. There was no sign of Gerfiner. The abandoned vehicle was located about 20 miles from where Gudmunder had disappeared almost a year earlier. Like before, a search team was formed. While divers were searching nearby waterways, dogs were covering a large area of land, but with no success. Unlike Gudmunder's case, police were fairly confident this time that foul play was involved. Around the time Gerfinner received the phone call, a man was seen inside the restaurant making a call. None of the waitstaff or diners could identify the person, which, for a small town, meant the man was definitely not a local. Anyone who knew Gerfinner knew that he would never leave his kids or go anywhere without telling family or friends. He was a quiet, kind person with no enemies that anyone knew about. While there were rumors that he might be smuggling alcohol into the country, there was never any evidence of this. With no further leads, police decided to close the file eight months later, in June 1975. However, pressure on authorities to solve the case was growing. Part of the reason was that Gerfinner's disappearance could not be written off as misadventure, like it was in Goodmunder's case. Gerfinner hadn't gone missing in the middle of a blizzard, nor had he been drinking to excess that evening. The suspicious nature of the case prompted authorities to open a murder investigation. Interestingly, with no apparent basis, they also decided to link Goodmunder's disappearance to this one and announced that it was now a case of double homicide. There may have been no bodies, compelling witness reports, or any forensic evidence, but that didn't stop Icelandic police from believing there was a serial killer on the loose in their quiet country. As the weeks turned into months with no solid leads, investigators became more and more frustrated. The complete lack of suspects wasn't looking good, and it was beginning to impact the police's credibility. By December 1975, investigators were getting desperate and were looking closely at everyone. They turned their focus to a man named Sivar Sichalski. The 20-year-old was known to law enforcement as a petty thief and said to be no stranger to violence. 
Growing up in Reykjavik, he became involved with minor crime as a teen, motivated by a childhood of poverty. According to reports, he had also been caught bringing cannabis into the country from Denmark. Saivar was in a relationship with a woman named Erla, who he'd met a year earlier at a party. By all accounts, they were a happy couple, and in September 1975, Erla had given birth to their baby girl. Four months later, in early December, Saivar and Erla were both arrested at their apartment on charges of embezzlement. A couple of summers earlier, they had stolen around $8,000 from Erla's employer, the National Phone Company. The pair were held in separate jail cells and informed they would be detained for at least the next month. When Erla was questioned by police, she denied everything. But when she was told that Saivar had blamed the entire embezzlement scheme on her, she reconsidered. Shocked, betrayed, and desperate to return home to her four-month-old daughter, Erla decided to open up about every minor criminal enterprise her boyfriend and his associates had been up to. Anything she thought would be of interest to the police. After Erla disclosed everything she knew to officers, they showed her a photo of Gudmundur and asked if she knew anything about him. She had actually met him once, several years ago at a party, but that was it. As police continued their relentless questioning, Erla mentioned in passing that, on the night of the 18-year-old's disappearance, she remembered having a nightmare. It was so vivid that she had difficulty believing whether it was real. Had she simply imagined hearing people whispering outside her window that night, or did it really happen? Whatever the case, when she suddenly awoke, there was nobody there, and she went back to sleep. Police carefully suggested to Erla that perhaps, rather than having a nightmare, she had actually witnessed something so traumatic it was suppressed deep within her subconscious. They insisted she knew more about Gudmundur's disappearance and just needed to concentrate on recalling more details. What better place to focus on one's thoughts than in solitary confinement? Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. As Erla remained isolated, she racked her brain trying to recall more about what the police had suggested. It didn't take long before she told investigators what they wanted to hear. On the night Gudmundur had disappeared, she had in fact awoken to see Saivar and two men carrying a large, heavy object into her apartment. She said the object was wrapped up, but it appeared to be the size and shape of a human body. Investigators seized the opportunity to connect dots that were previously unrelated. One of those items was a bedsheet found in her garbage. Before, it was just a discarded old bedsheet. But now, police wondered whether it had been used to wrap Goodmunder's body. It was made clear to Erla that her time in solitary confinement was entirely decided by police. The more her level of cooperation with investigators, the less time she would spend in isolation her sense of reality was beginning to break. 
On one occasion, Erla was interrogated by authorities for ten hours straight. When the session was over, she was presented with a pre-written statement. All she had to do was sign it, and the terrible treatment would end. The document formally alleged that Sivar and three other men had wrapped up Goodmunder's body in a bedsheet at the apartment after murdering him. Believing it was the only way to escape the horrible situation and return home to her child, Erla signed the confession. Along with Sivar, the three men she implicated were 20-year-old Christian Wiedersen, 24-year-old Trigvi Lefsen, and 20-year-old Albert Skeftesen. Christian and Trigvi were known to police, having been in and out of prison over the years for theft and petty offenses. Albert, on the other hand, was less of a troublemaker. His only contact with police had been for marijuana possession, but otherwise he had a clean record. When investigators spoke with Albert, he said that on the night in question, Sivar had called and asked him to drive over to the apartment. He told them that when he arrived, Sivar, Christian, and Trigvi approached his vehicle carrying something wrapped in a bag. Whatever it was, it was large. Sivar told Albert it was a human body and offered him some cannabis in return for helping the group dispose of it. With that, the men placed the object in the car and got in. Albert drove out of town as Sivar gave directions to a location he had in mind. Albert told police that when they arrived, the group carried Gudmunder's body into the lava fields and hid it between crevices. Confronted with Erla's statement, Sivar eventually started to open up to investigators. He explained that on the night Gudmunder disappeared, the 18-year-old had joined the group at Erla's apartment. An argument had broken out between the men over who was going to pay for a bottle of liquor, which somehow led to Gudmunder's death. Sivar then confirmed that he did call Albert, who drove over. Following this admission, Christian and Trigvi were called into the police station for questioning. Christian told authorities that his memory of the night was hazy because he had been drinking heavily. He did, however, deny being involved in the argument between the other men. Trigvi corroborated that there had been a disagreement, which escalated into a fistfight. According to Trigvi, at one point during the fight, Gudmunder fell to the floor. That's when Sivar allegedly kicked him in the head. With all four men locked up in solitary confinement, over the next few weeks, police subjected them to lengthy interrogations at all hours of the day and night. It didn't take long to get what they were after. Christian and Trigvi eventually confessed as well to their involvement with the killing of Gudmunder. Investigators now had signed confessions from all of their suspects. There may have been a few discrepancies between their statements, but they were mostly consistent with Erla's version of events. Erla was finally released, but investigators were not done with her yet. Not even close. Now that police had solved Goodmunder's murder, there was no reason why they couldn't do the same for the other disappearance. Aside from Albert, all the men in custody had a history of violence, and as far as police were concerned, they could have done the same thing to Gerfiner. After all, with no evidence or witnesses, who's to say it didn't happen? To make it work, though, police would need Erla's assistance. Like before, she was the key to getting another confession out of Sivar and the others. 
A few months later, in early 1976, police visited Erla to ask if she thought the men would have any information about Gerfinner's disappearance. Authorities explained they wanted to help her remember what had happened, adding that it was likely so traumatic that her mind had repressed it. At the same time, police started applying pressure to Sivar, Kristen, Trigvi, and Albert, who were all still in custody. In May 1976, Erla was taken into custody on charges of being an accessory to Gerfinner's murder. She was threatened with having her daughter taken away permanently if she didn't confess to her involvement. So, she did. They ultimately received confessions from Erla, Sivar, and Christian, who all admitted to taking part in killing Gerfinner. They also mentioned another person who was involved, but they would not confirm the identification. Their stories, however, would start to differ radically. Erla's account was that she had shot and killed Gerfinner. Sivar told authorities the group had become involved in a fight aboard a boat in the harbor. During the fight, Gerfinner fell and hit his head, dying on the spot. Believing the case they were building was insufficient, police brought in renowned German investigator Karl Schultz. His goal was to get consistent statements from all involved, so the matter could go to court. Investigators made a breakthrough in November 1976 when they apprehended 32-year-old Gudjun Skarfedinsen. He was the mystery man the suspects had refused to identify. Coincidentally, he was also a former schoolteacher of Sivar's. He told investigators that he had no recollection about what he'd been doing two years earlier when Gerfinner went missing, but suggested that he would likely recall it if he had actually killed someone. Investigators kept the pressure on their group of suspects. They drove them out to the lava fields on numerous occasions, hoping to jog their memory about the location of the bodies. When they weren't being escorted to the lava fields, they were in solitary confinement, being drugged with powerful sedatives. Over time, the treatment started causing extreme memory loss. The lights were kept on in their cells 24 hours a day, resulting in sleep deprivation. The ongoing torture, while difficult for everyone, was somewhat worse for Sivar, who investigators considered the mastermind of the operation. They knew he had a fear of drowning, so officers held his head in a bucket of water in an effort to extract more information. It was rare for any of the accused to have a lawyer present at any of their police interviews. In fact, it was rare for any lawyers to see their clients at all. Still, investigators were not getting the information they wanted. In the end, authorities offered the possibility of release if Erla agreed to sign a statement. In it, she would confess to her involvement in setting fire to Gerfinner's body somewhere in the lava fields. Police continued to work on the former teacher, Gudjun, who, in line with the official version of events, eventually confessed to being at the crime scene. After that, the others fell like dominoes. Erla soon confessed, as did Sivar, followed by the others. However, Gudjun's jailhouse diaries reveal a very different account. Shortly after his confession in December 1976, he wrote, I can't remember anything, and I'm losing my mind. I'm involved in some unbelievable web of lies. 
There is something really wrong about this case, particularly the fact that I can't remember anything. Shortly after signing the statements, the group tried to recant their confessions. They believed it was their only way out of solitary confinement, but as far as the task force was concerned, it was too late. The case was going to court. When the trial began in December 1977, the prosecutor started by laying out the events that apparently took place. He said the accused men had arranged to meet Gerfinner at the harbor to get some alcohol he had smuggled in. However, an argument broke out and he was killed accidentally. His body had been taken to the lava fields, where it was set on fire in a remote area. The prosecutor also revealed that it was Christian who made the phone call to Gerfinner from the restaurant. Well, supposedly. All six of the accused were found guilty of various offenses associated with both the alleged murders. The only ones who were not convicted of murder were Erla and Albert. Erla was instead found guilty of perjury for implicating several other individuals, a group that became known as the Club Men. She was sentenced to three years in prison. Albert was convicted of obstructing justice and received a 12-month sentence. Saivar, Christian, Trigvi, and Gudjun were sentenced to between 10 and 17 years behind bars after being found guilty of murder. After an appeal, in February 1980, the Supreme Court reduced the sentences, but upheld the convictions. It didn't take long before the group was quietly released, one by one, ending with Saivar in 1984. Throughout the 1990s, they maintained a campaign to have the case reopened in order to clear their names. In 1997, however, the court rejected the petition. That decision prompted the Prime Minister to heavily criticize the way the matter was originally investigated. After her release, Erla was treated as an outcast throughout the small country. Unable to get a job, she moved to Hawaii hoping to make a fresh start, but eventually returned to Iceland in 1998. The campaign to clear their names continued, but the court was not backing down, rejecting their applications in 1999 and 2000. It would take years before the court would even consider reopening the case, but not everyone in the group would live to see it. In 2009, Trigvi passed away from cancer at the age of 58. Then, in mid-2011, 57-year-old Saivar died after years of heavy drinking. Not long after Saivar's death, Trigvi's daughter announced that she had some of her father's diaries, detailed logbooks that were written during his time in custody. Of the group, Trigvi had spent the longest time in solitary confinement, a staggering 655 days. The diaries were handed over to a highly respected forensic specialist. The individual was a pioneer in the phenomenon known as false memory syndrome, which occurs during high-stress, vulnerable situations, like being subjected to intense, prolonged interrogations when your freedom is at stake, for example. If the person has no support outside these hostile conversations, it can have a dramatic impact on their suggestibility. The result can often be in the form of a false confession. The forensic expert was convinced that at least five of the six who were convicted had evidence of false memory syndrome. 
This critical development led to the case being re-examined by an independent committee in late 2011. Eighteen months later, it was formally determined that all the confessions obtained during the investigation were entirely unreliable, and therefore, false. In February 2018, the Icelandic state prosecutor officially requested that the Supreme Court reopen the case. Seven months later, in September, the court acquitted all five men of any involvement in the two disappearances. The surviving members of the group went on to have families and tried to live normal, quiet lives. Albert and Christian remained in Iceland, while Goodjohn left teaching behind and became a Lutheran minister. He later relocated to Denmark, hoping to leave the past behind. His move, however, hasn't helped him escape a tremendous guilt. He said he still carries about how much he complied with the police. Aside from Erla and Saivar, no one ever spoke publicly about their ordeal. Perhaps the greatest irony of this story is that everyone who dealt with the fallout of the most infamous police investigation in Iceland will never be able to forget what happened. Then I'll know what you mean So the theory goes But here in the real world It don't work that way You claim I don't hear Anything you say The myth of translation Says words can convey Intentions and meaning From your heart to my brain Miscommunication Has plainly been framed The myth of translation Is clearly too plain True is a production of Imperative Entertainment this episode of True was researched and written by Gemma Harris. The executive producer is Jason Hope of Imperative Entertainment. The cover art and design were created by Jenna Sullivan. True was created and is produced by me. Have any comments or questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. As always, a huge thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode. Words can convey intentions and meaning from my heart to your brain. Miscommunication has plainly been framed. The myth of translation is clearly to blame.
The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.